right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me as always, Gabe Gums. Today we have Vanessa Wu. Uh, she is a general counsel for Rippling. Vanessa, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to just start the show off with telling us about yourself and the listeners, uh, we'd love to get to know where you came from and, and how you got to, to Rippling. Yeah, so I'm uh, the general counsel at Rippling, which is a um, HR and IT all-in-one software solution. We like to say we are an employee data system of records. So that's really how we think about our solution. We think of all business systems being connected to that employee data record and that we build or we integrate with solutions on top of that. So we personally offer payroll benefits, single sign-on, password management, but we integrate with hundreds of other applications such as Zoom and Dropbox so that you can manage all of your systems through one platform. Um, Since this is privacy, please, uh, I like to think of myself as a a privacy lawyer by background. Um, So I can tell you guys a little bit about how I got interested in privacy. Um, It was really, I was practicing at a big law firm, Latham & Watkins, doing antitrust work when all of the Edward Snowden revelations uh, came about. And suddenly in the media, there was all of this press about all the information that our government had on us. And uh, meanwhile, I was practicing antitrust work and we were doing a lot of mergers where um, we were having a hard time valuing companies such as Facebook buying WhatsApp for billions of dollars, yet WhatsApp not having any revenue uh, associated with their business. And it was because the value of WhatsApp is really the consumers and the data and the marketing and advertising potential there. Um, So I just became really interested in what is privacy what kind of data is being used in the technology ecosystem? How do we protect that? How do we honor what consumers expect, what customers expect? And I um, you know, worked on some surveillance matters with the ACLU at, at Latham and then moved to LiveRamp, where I was the general counsel and LiveRamp's a publicly traded uh, ad tech platform. Um, and so got to work on a lot of thorny, relevant uh, privacy issues from that vantage, thinking about how to navigate GDPR uh, in Europe and CCPA in California, these new omnibus privacy uh, laws. Um, And then I transitioned over to Rippling because it was really interested in this employee data system of record concept. It seemed like a business model that was directly aligned with how I saw privacy legislation going. I see the world becoming a lot more like Europe, a lot more um, like privacy is a fundamental right, rather than privacy and data is something that can be traded, bought, sold, bargained for. It's something more fundamental than that. And I slowly am seeing the world and even places like the U.S. coming to to that view with the California Consumer Privacy Act. Yeah, I want to jump right in on a question that I've asked a couple of folks on the show before, but you said something just now that maybe even contradicts the way I've been thinking about it, which is that privacy is a fundamental right, and maybe I'm paraphrasing, so keep me honest here, means that it's something that can't be traded on or sold. What what was that exactly that you said? I think that... Uh, that partial question is the million dollar question right now in privacy. 
like in the in data protection. So in Europe, in uh, under the general data protection regulation in Europe and a lot of the individual countries before GDPR went into effect, privacy and any data about you as an individual is yours. It right. is as fundamental as free speech or a right to bear arms is to Americans. It is fundamentally part of something that you should have a right to in Europe. And I think it's important for us in the U.S. to understand that that is how Europeans view data production. And there's good basis for it. It's not even all the same in Europe. If you go to Germany, it's like 10 levels more extreme than that. Germany has this history with the Nazi regime where uh, the Nazis were using data that they had on their citizens to do ethnic cleansing Holocaust activities. So there is a lot of sensitivity in Germany around who has my data, what do they know about me, what are they going to use it for, and they better not be using that data to even do anything that looks like the surveillance that happened uh during World War II under the Hitler regime. So I think understanding that perspective in Europe like just adds a lot of color into how they view their data. In the US, totally different ballgame. Historically, like there is not, you know, there's no constitutional right to privacy in the US. It is not, we have a right to free speech. We have a right to bear arms and have guns. We do not have a right to privacy. Um, There are some states that have privacy in their constitutions, like California, but it is at a state-by-state level. So I think that dichotomy persists, but I see the U.S. starting to think about, given what has happened with Cambridge Analytica and, um, and like our political environment and how data is being used to change sentiment, change politics, Um, I think people are slowly seeing the power of all of the data that these large platforms have. And as a result, are starting to get more and more concerned about, is it just currency? Is it something that can just, you can find it and trade it and sell it and monetize it? Or is it something more? Should we start thinking of it as more personal to ourselves and more like free speech and, and gun rights and so on and so forth? You are right. It was a partial question in so much that uh, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to make sure I, I kind of had a bearing or got my bearing straight on that thought process in particular. And the reason for that first part of the partial question was I've also been contemplating what it means for individuals who have a right to own their own data to be able to sell and trade that data, right? Because I, I've been coming at this from the perspective of, well, if it's being monetized by the Facebooks of the world uh, is the only value that you then as an individual get to derive from it, you know, is the use of their platform that feels imbalanced to me. And so should there be some structure by which we can sell our own data? But what kind of got me thinking differently for a second there and still is when you frame it, that it is a, it is a, a right in that sense, right? Like almost inalienable, if you would, although you didn't use that word, right? It's a fundamental right. Could we, if it were to be recognized as a fundamental right, could we then be able to monetize it ourselves? I don't really know the answer to that. I'm just kind of, you know, pondering that thought process. Um, 
But then you also touch on the fact that you're right. The Constitution does not explicitly guarantee us that right. The Fourth Amendment alludes to it. And the Supreme Court, I believe, has said that there's like several other amendments that uh, that create that right. I am no constitutional lawyer, by the way, listeners. So you you need not <laughs> any of this vice <laughs> whatsoever. On the list of things I am not, constitutional lawyer is high on the, very high on the list of things I am not. Um, but if it if it were to be established as a fundamental right. How would that impact our ability to, you know, create some type of marketplace where I could trade my own data for something other than access to what Cam did last night? Because I don't, I don't really want to know, quite frankly. <laughs> I want to trade my data for that. Yeah, I mean, I if if privacy is viewed more like a fundamental right in the U.S., I think it starts to look a lot more like Europe or like where the California law. Uh, this California Consumer Privacy Act is the first piece of kind of omnibus privacy legislation in the U.S., and it went into effect this year just for California. Um, and I think it is the first time we start seeing that shift from U.S. thinking to European thinking in the U.S. So under CCPA, um, this California law, uh, consumers in California now have the right to ask platforms to show them the data that they have collected about them and to give them the right to say, do not sell my data. So it is my data. You cannot sell it if I do not give you permission. Um, and those start to be, um, you know, rights that are framed around the individual. So giving the individual more control or give me a copy of all my data, presumably so you can bring it to other platforms or you can monetize it yourself. I mean, whether people know it or not, when you are, when any consumer is browsing the internet and, or reading an article on a newspaper for quote free, it is likely not free. Those writers, unless they are volunteer writers are likely being paid and they're being paid through the advertising revenue that is coming into that paper, which means, um, you know, those ads being shown to you are are what are driving the revenue behind that publication. And the way that those publications get more money through those ads if, is if they can make them more personalized. People pay more per click for more personalized advertising. So if they're collecting data about you when you're reading, they're going to have more revenue. Now, that's not always a bad thing. It means you are paying with your data to read that article for free and receiving advertising in exchange. I think consumers just don't think of it in that way. Now, you, you touched on CCPA. Offline, you were talking a little bit about the history of it, and I thought it was very fascinating because I didn't really know too much about it, and I'm not sure if a lot of our listeners know about it, but I thought maybe you could share that just little story because I think that's super interesting about yeah. how it all got started. I mean... The, the crazy thing about privacy laws is that there aren't that many of them and they tend to start just because there is a regular individual who feels concerned about something. And so in the case of the California Consumer Privacy Act, there was an individual named Alistair McTaggart who was a real estate developer in San Francisco uh, who was, it's, I think, at a dinner party. Uh, with an engineer at one of those platforms. I believe it was Twitter, but it might have been another platform. And he was just really concerned about all the data 
that these platforms had about him. He had no idea. And so he started researching it. He was a wealthy guy and he put a couple million dollars towards launching a ballot initiative campaign in California to get the California Consumer Privacy Act on the ballot. Because in California, you can, um, if you get enough signatures, you can get laws put on the ballot. Um, And it was clear that it was about to pass. So he struck a deal with the legislature and they just wrote it into law over the summer so that it didn't get put on the ballot. And now we have the most comprehensive set of privacy rules in the US, all because a real estate developer in San Francisco had a conversation and was feeling concerned about the amount of data that platforms were collecting about him. That's fascinating, but it's also concerning because what is he hiding? That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> He's a real estate lawyer. <laughs> Not um, Yeah. Uh, no, that's fascinating. I think that's really cool. And I didn't know about that. Um, so hopefully some, some of you learned some new things there. But now with CCPA and Enforced, what do you think are some of the, the, the threats or penalties for small businesses they could face? Yeah, I mean, so so privacy is in the name of the the bill or you know cons- California Consumer Privacy Act, mm-hmm. but the biggest penalty that I see in CCPA that small businesses should care about is the fact that now for the first time um, there is this is a legal term private right of action, and I'll explain what that means um, for security breaches. So historically, you had to. Um, you know, maybe get the government or the attorney general's office to sue a company, which can be a big deal because, um, you know, those agencies have limited staffing. Private right of action means any individual can come up and sue you and they can band together and they can make it really expensive. They can say, you know, not just me, but these 10,000 other people had their data accessed in an unauthorized way in violation of the California Consumer Privacy Act. And we're just going to sue you on our own. We're going to hire ourselves a lawyer. And here we go. And so those get really, really expensive really fast. And we think that is definitely the biggest threat from CCPA. So there's like a heightened importance around making sure that just personal data that you have, especially of Californians, that you're keeping that secure. It's encrypted that you know where it is, where it's going, all that good stuff from a security standpoint. Yeah, those are good points. Um, now, uh, I was reading here, you were quoted recently in USA Today, is that right? To share your concerns over employee data and privacy. What are your expectations in the wake of CCPA compared to G- GDPR? Yeah, I mean, so so CCPA is by far the broadest privacy law that we have in the United States. It doesn't go as far as GDPR because it has some key exceptions in it. One of those exceptions is that it does not cover um, for this year, and it just got extended to next year as well. So um, as far as we're aware, until 2022, employee data is not going to really be covered by CCPA except for the data breach obligations and some notification obligations. So when you're talking about 
Um, the data you give Facebook or Google, that's all covered, but the data you give your employer, you know, your social security number, your bank account, all that great stuff to run your payroll, your HR and benefits, the kind of data that uh, Rippling deals with. Um, I think most people don't realize that there's just not the same protections afforded to employees and employee data that there is other types of consumer data. So that's sort of one kind of major gap um, that exists in sort of our privacy regulatory framework right now. Interesting. Um, Let's touch on a little bit about rippling a little more because obviously you, you carry plenty of sensitive information from employee data. And why is employee data more than just HR data? Yeah. um, So, I mean, I think people historically have thought of employee data as existing just for HR needs because you're hiring somebody and you need to Mm -hmm. pay them. You collect their bank account information um, because you need to enroll that person in health insurance benefits. So you collect the information you need to do open enrollment um, and so on and so forth. Um, and that's all, that's all well and good, but we think that here at Rippling that doesn't really um, cover all of the possibilities around how employee data is really kind of like the lifeblood or the backbone of organizations and can be used in a really positive way to make your organization more secure, operate more efficiently. And what I mean by this is, you know, every time you hire someone or or let somebody go, that person has access to all of your business systems. I think mm-hmm. Octa did a report last year that the average Okta customer ha- is linked up to 88 different business systems, whether that's Zoom or Dropbox or GitHub for engineering teams or contract management solutions for the legal teams. You, everyone has their own vendors that they're using, but you don't necessarily want every single person in your organization to have access to every single solution you have. That's not secure, you know, back to that data security concept we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what Rippling can do, because we have the HR data, because we know your name and we know your role and we know your email, if you are an engineer, we can automatically provision you with GitHub. And if you are in legal, you can get automatically provisioned with the legal contract management tools so that you have access to those tools. And when you leave, just as importantly, you can get deprovisioned from all of those different um, software pieces. And we sort of view being able to use employee data to manage business systems that it's just a huge advantage for organizations to run efficiently to run securely um, and to manage, you know, the data protection since you're centralizing that employee data um, and limiting the use of that employee data for specific purposes. I really like the fact that you use the term positive when it comes to privacy and data and stuff, because I feel like usually when you hear about that, it seems very serious. It seems very, it can be very negative. Is there, is there any kind of advice that you can give to other companies about just being more compliant and transparent about your data and your privacy? Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk to, um, so this is a struggle as a GC, 
you're talking to your CEO or your CTO or other stakeholders across the company. And you can go up to someone and say, we need to do X, Y, Z because we need to become GDPR compliant. And not that folks don't care, but they, they don't care. That doesn't, that doesn't incentivize anybody to right. do anything really except out of fear, which I don't think is, is necessarily very positive. Um, but if you ask questions about, you know, what data do we have about our customers and where does that go and where do we house that and what's happening there, um, then I think people get a lot more interested and if people don't have good answers to those questions, you know, that that becomes a problem. I don't think, I think people all recognize that there is a, a need to have answers to those very basic questions, that those are very, like, those are very reasonable questions for a customer or consumer to be asking of you. Um, so I... You know, I think being able to transform the language around privacy to like the individual and what, you know, building trust with your customers and building your reputation, I think that is super key because privacy and security are really about brand and trust uh, and transparency. Yeah. Where do, you, where do you see privacy laws going uh, in the near future? Uh, do you see? Do you see like? Uh, I, th- I think that the workplace privacy is going to be a big thing because I know you've kind of touched on that. But where do you see that going in the near future? Um, I I think workplace privacy is an area that should get more attention, um, only because it seems to be one of those areas where there's just a lot of disparity between the sensitivity of the data being collected and the legal protections afforded to employees. There are a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, very positive, you know, reasonable, expected reasons why employers would have that data and need to have that data so they can pay you, which I think everybody wants to see. Give me my money. Yeah, I will really (laughs) employer my bank account. Be like, pay me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also want to know that my employer is going to keep that number secure um, and use it for that purpose. So you know, I, I think that is one area. And I think just sort of this notion of privacy becoming more like a fundamental right, I think gone are kind of the days that you can just hoover up data, um, treat it like a digital currency, and expect no consequences to, to come from that. I think, you know, we're not going to ever look exactly like Europe and the US, but I think we're going to start, we are already starting to care more and more about what the individual who's that who that data is about what they think and what they expect and like what's reasonable. Yeah. Gabe, you got anything on that? That last part, what's reasonable is the, 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 the what is reasonable? Re- reasonable is always whenever you hear that word in 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 legal terms, I always get a little I always get a little worried as uh <laughs> What is what does that mean? What does it reasonable mean in this context? Yeah, I mean, so I like, so obviously the FTC only enforces like the most egregious cases, but one of the early privacy cases they brought was against a a flashlight app. Uh, you know, one of those applications and would turn on your phone and shine the light, so you could use it like a flashlight. Um, 
And that company was, you know, just on off switch offering a flashlight. And, but what they were doing is they were collecting all of your location details, just any, you know, they were land grabbing any type of data they could get about you while you had that flashlight open. Um, and, you know, they weren't disclosing that in their privacy policy and so on and so forth, but that was deemed to be unreasonable. And so it is a murky standard because it's about like what are community norms, but like that's an extreme example of like what's not reasonable, uh, like legally. I think it's really hard though, because, you know, technology is changing so quickly that what is reasonable today was maybe not reasonable 10 years ago just because there wasn't enough consumer expectation around how like the internet worked. I actually think collecting cookies is way more reasonable today than it was even like three years ago when people had no idea that cookies were on computers. I think people sort of still have a murky idea of what that means. Um, But before people had no idea that there were these little one by one pictures on when you're loading, I think people still don't know this. When you load a web page, there are these little one by one pixels that are actually licensed out to other ad tech companies so that when that picture loads, it triggers dropping a cookie, getting information from the page, and all sorts of other fun stuff. Yeah, it's not just web pages, actually. For those that are not familiar, that same technology and services used by a lot of marketing email technology, and it is uh, it is embedded into email so that you can track when people open it and what they do with it, who they forward it to. You'd be amazed what you can do with a one-by-one pixel. <laughs> one by one pixel might be the the single smallest privacy offender out there. If the if the single cell amoeba is the is the smallest living organism, the one by one pixel is the single largest privacy offender on the planet. <laughs> yeah, the one by one pixel is definitely a new learning for me in the ad tech world. I think for for folks that don't know what we're talking about, we're literally talking about a image on your computer on a web page and an email. That is literally a dot. And when that dot loads, um, all sorts of marketing companies can get access to tons of information on that page. And so, I mean, those are kind of the, that's that like ad tech world that a lot of these laws have been focused at because ad tech technology is really hard to understand from a consumer perspective. And yet it is rampant. It is flashback to the very first episode of this show. In the show notes, I have a list of some privacy-preserving anti-ad tech technologies that everyone should certainly consider using. There's there's a host of them. Um, Yeah, folks should definitely check that out. There's there, and even with those technologies, you're not 100 percent guaranteed to not have have those things invade your privacy. They are, they are not just pervasive, but because of the, the volume of, of information that can be collected and how much that can be monetized, these technology companies work very fast to it, it. It's it's an even bigger game of cat and mouse in the ad tech world than it is in the security world, if you would. So, yeah, yeah this might be controversial to say as a somewhat of privacy attorney, um, but I actually love when I am on Instagram and they have an ad for a consumer product that I exactly, that is exactly what I wanted to learn about. 
Um, it's very cool that they can do that. Yeah, it, they, I think it does it better than almost any other company. But they're able to do that because they have so much information about me that they, they know exactly what I might be interested in in that moment. What I don't want to see as a consumer is that abused um, or that that data is being like sold to political organizations to, um, you know, run sort of more nefarious activities. And I, I just think this is just me opining here. I just think that there's no way for consumers to enforce those rights. I think the government needs to regulate at a base level, like what can or cannot be done with this data. Um, like that's the only way to really give consumers meaningful protection that that same data being used to show me like delightful ads, you know, who knew I wanted to do a gardening project or something that now, you know, like Facebook and Instagram did, um, but that that same data is not also being, you know, used to help Russians manipulate a political campaign in the U.S. Right. As a privacy advocate, I'm, I'm with you. I appreciate when the ad is insightful and useful. Um, I intentionally didn't use the word targeted, right? Uh, versus just getting random spam of nonsense I will never, ever want to consume. But it's that trade-off. Flashing ads and all of this you know, stuff all over the web pages, because that's the alternative. Really. But I think this all transaction transitions into business software as well. Um, if, if, you know, business solutions like Rippling and others can use data in the ways that are expected to bring positive experiences for consumers, for other businesses, you know, yeah. I think that is what we're trying to protect as privacy professionals. We're not trying to say don't share data ever, but do so respectfully, do so in ways that build trust. Yeah. I'm, totally on board with both of you. And I, I wish that the, the, the things you're mentioning where you get something that's kind of nice that you either, either maybe you said something out loud and then that ad pops up like, Oh, I was just talking about these shorts <laughs> or, you know, something with clothing or whatever the case may be, but it's um, it would be really nice if it was used more positively for, I don't know, what if somebody was looking for a job and then, you get like an ad for a certain job to, to go after or something like that would be much more, much more useful um, in the sense of the, the type of marketing, but obviously everybody has an agenda and um, there's two both sides of the coin. So there's always positive and negative when it comes to that, but hopefully we'll see more positive actions with, with something like that. I really think we need to focus on, on like cutting out the bad actors and having um, legislation help drive that because I think that is predominantly what is eroding trust. That, and I, I do think a lot of these laws like CCPA and GDPR are in the right direction and that they provide transparency to consumers, although it's not really the average consumer, but it's reporters so that they can write about what what mm -hmm. companies are doing. Yeah, more and, often than not, you always hear you always hear about the negative stories, not the positive ones. Yeah, I, I, something just came to mind, when, um, and I just lost it. <laughs> there, there it goes. 
five classic plants in your brain that just automatically streamed everything to the screen we would know right no worried about privacy so no it's just screen it through my eyes i got like contacts that give me whatever i want to see and watch movies in it all that crazy stuff the future it's right around the corner yeah any second now um so vanessa any any advice any anything that you want to add that we didn't really touch on uh, that you would like to share with our listeners that, that could be insightful or just anything that we can learn from around privacy or like regulations or how you're, how you're doing over there in, in San Francisco with all the fires. <laughs> um, well, hanging in there, although I think that's sort of true for everybody, no matter where you are quarantining these days, sort of hanging yeah. there with 2020 and hoping it will soon be 2021. Um, since 2020 seems to keep bringing new surprises like COVID and fires out in California and mm-hmm. fun stuff every single yeah. day. Um, on the privacy front, I'm just really excited that podcasts like this exist. It's exciting to see more and more people get involved. And I I'd encourage sort of listeners who are newer to the field to, to embrace the field. What is cool to me about it is like Gabe was mentioning, no one really knows what reasonable is. So that's all going to be defined over the next few years. And that is going to be defined by individuals who are working in the privacy field, sort of sorting out through the muck, getting their, you know, their rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty in terms of sorting out their technologies against reasonableness standards and like these new privacy laws that are coming about. And then frankly, like a lot of this is not very new. So there's just a lot of opportunity. Yeah, it's definitely not new. And that's, that's gotta be refreshing for you, Gabe, and for yourself, Vanessa, just because that it's finally starting to turn a corner. And maybe it's just because people like that guy who started CCPA just finally said, I had an, I've had enough. I want to do something and take an action. And we need more people like that. And we need to continue to build a, a strong community like, like we're all trying to do um, around data privacy and security. And so thank you for what you do and for being a privacy advocate as well. So Gabe, anything before we move on to the, to the fun stuff? You know. It is definitely that time. No, I appreciate it. Um, I, when I first learned of Rippling, I thought it was fascinating, to be honest with you, looking at what your organization did. So, um, yeah, I don't have anything else on that front. Um, yeah, let's, let's, hit the, let's hit the fun stuff. Okay. So I got a question for you, Vanessa. What makes you tick? What gets you going? What, what keeps you going every day? Anything in particular? This is not specific, but laughs. Laughs? Laughs, absolutely. Fantastic. You came to, you came to the right place. That's, that's what I'm paid for. <laughs> you can go through your life and you can, you can, you know, work is going to be work and you can either have fun with it or you can choose not to. So I choose to have fun with it. Paid for. Love it. Who's paying for, who's paying for, who's paying for this cap? That was me being facetious. <laughs> 
give you some examples. We've been thinking a lot about how we how we embed compliance at Rippling, how do we create a compliance culture at Rippling, how we get people to understand privacy rules and principles and lecturing folks for an hour just doesn't seem like the right way. And so we don't right. have an answer yet, but we're trying out different platforms, including TikTok uh, and Monday memes and other stuff. So you have That's your it. podcast, maybe we'll have a uh, compliance TikTok. Nice. There you go. I think, it, I mean, you just gotta enjoy life. I, I love, so one of my favorite movies is Zombieland. Um, because one of the biggest things from that movie is enjoy the little things. And I absolutely, it's ever since I saw that movie, it just stuck with me for some reason. I know that's silly, but it really is. It, you have to enjoy the little things or you're going to drive yourself insane, especially during 2020, because this year is the worst. <laughs> why why but, you say that now? It's but it's happen. also good, because, <laughs> but it's also the best because I think it's bringing the best out of all of us. Um, cause everybody's trying, everybody has to step up, um, a lot of changes, a lot of adapting and working from home and, and companies changing and people losing their jobs and more privacy concerns. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, um, it's just good to hear that, uh, someone like yourself, you know, you gotta just live, live life and be happy. Just enjoy it. I like it. Have fun with it. Um, all right. This is, this is a question that I think should be interesting. And Gabe, maybe you can chime in on this one too. I think you're going to like it. So what will finally break the internet? Oh, wow. <laughs> Nessa, that's all you. What what will break the internet? <laughs> I thought it was very relatable to this. So I don't think the internet can be broken. Well, uh, wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> we Everything had... can break. Uh, I mean, if like, do you mean break the internet in a viral sense? We've had Trump for four years on Twitter. That hasn't broken. The <laughs> True. That's True. a great point. Yeah, yeah. That no, is such survives. a good point. Um, I don't know. I guess you could look at it in both ways, um, in a sense of either breaking and like literally or breaking out. Right. The correct answer is the great emu war of 2020, which will uh, come to us live from Australia at the end of this year. Um, that will break the internet. What's that now? <laughs> <laughs> the emu war. Ooh, I may start yet another war because I believe they prefer it to be pronounced emu. Mm. <laughs> Somewhere out there, all of my Aussie fans are 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 shaking their fists at, at the screen right now. So <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, but well, you should Google it. Yeah, I will. I'm going to have to Google it. Notes. It's going to the show notes. <laughs> That's fair. Apple's trying to break the internet. They want everything to be apps and proprietary and like they're doing it. They're doing a good job at it. I mean, Facebook was trying to break anything. Anybody who's competing with Amazon and Facebook are trying to break the internet. They want to move away from search and they want you to be on social platforms or yeah. buying stuff. On it's true. At least Apple has a good privacy uh, approach from, from my understanding. That's they good. do. They're, they're definitely on the forefront for the, for the big platforms, but they also yeah. from, I did say I was a competition antitrust lawyer at the beginning and from a competition standpoint, they're not very open. So they do also use privacy and security as a way to keep their, their platform closed and 
away from competitors. You know, the the juxtaposed view of that, though, is that, hey, a lot of folks like their walled garden, and it's the reason they go to them, is because it is so controlled. The experience is controlled, and, and you know what to expect. And B, we could also look at their privacy practices and their digital devices as probably being some of the better out there too, right? So it is, they do exist in this weird kind of Schrodinger's privacy box where it's like, ah, we we do a really good job of protecting your privacy on your devices, but a really awful job of protecting your privacy digitally as well too. So yeah, they're an interesting one. We should do a whole show just on that. Um, I'm not opposed to it. I don't want um, Apple coming after me, so I'll let you guys find a different guest for that one. <laughs> Bring it on, so, Tim Cook. <laughs> so, Vanessa, what is the most useless talent you have, but you're proud of? Hmm. Interesting, huh? Interesting. I don't know where I get these. <laughs> um, talent. Talents are hard. I mean, I can, I can probably say I have an interest in watching a lot of reality dance television. So I can probably cite for you um, pretty much anyone who has been on a So You Think You Can Dance or Dancing with the Stars program. Are you a fan of World of Dance? I've not seen World of Dance. Oh, is- it's a great show. Great show. I'm not even a dancer. But I, that it. was my next question. Is, but but can you dance? <laughs> no, I can't. But can you? <laughs> Maybe that's I, why I find it so interesting. Oddly. Yeah, that's cool. So, so you're obsessed with with reality dance shows? Is it is it reality shows in general or just dance shows? Dance shows and and other sort of not highbrow television. Yes. What the politically correct way to say trashy TV is. We can call it trashy TV. Do you mean like, um, oh, let's talk about, uh, I've never seen it, but the Kardashians, they ended in 14 years. Finally, they're done. Thank God. I mean, no, it was a good show. I Um, know they. I saw that. I'm not a religious keeping up with the Kardashians watcher. I just saw, I saw an ad on it or a post. Yeah, I saw that they, that's something that 2020 did in, it seems like. Thank goodness. That's that a positive thing in 2020. Awesome. You heard it here first on Privacy, Please. We're going to pick fights with the Kardashians, but not Tim Cook. <laughs> I can take Tim Cook. <laughs> okay. Well, um, <laughs> so what is one of the worst purchases you've ever made in your entire life? Worst purchase. Huh. I don't, I don't have a lot of regrets. That's not a very satisfying answer. I Great made answer. a lot of terrible purchases because I am was an early adopter at Amazon. And so there's just all kinds of, I don't know, excuse my French, like crap that has been <laughs> in my home over the years. And I also have two kids. So like every new, you know, I think at one point I got a little mesh bag to hold bath toys and it turns out it's literally a mesh bag with like clips on the side. It cost $10. That made no sense whatsoever. So that was probably a pretty terrible purchase, but I I don't regret (laughs) it. I like that though. You don't regret That's good. That's how you should go with things. That's awesome. 
So one last question here for you. If, if you could be any kind of food, what food would you be and why? Mm. I say ice cream because it's delicious. Everybody, that's a, that's a common answer, a but I like it. Answer. Yeah, we've gotten it a few times. Everyone loves ice cream. Right? It's universal truth. People love oh. ice cream. One day, Gabe, we'll have somebody that likes sorbet. Well, you know. <laughs> I could do like a mango. Mangoes are delicious. Mangoes huh? are delicious. And you know what's even better than mangoes? Mango sorbet. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys ever had fresh watermelon Ju- yeah. uh, juice? Juice, watermelon juice? Yes. Yeah, I actually had it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I have. It's good. It's refreshing. Watermelon juice on like icy. Yes. Yeah. Like not like an, I, with a little bit of cane sugar just to sweeten it up. It's uh, it's very, I don't know why, but it's just refreshing to eat watermelon or to have watermelon. It's yeah. obviously because it's like what, 99% water. So, well, there's that. Maybe right. that's the, the image of the hot day. Yeah. Pool or beach involved. Have you guys ever had yellow watermelon? Because I have not, but I'm interested. Uh, I've seen it. I've not had it. I've also never had square watermelons. Yeah. I don't know what that is. It was a weird, I don't know if it, it, it persisted or not, but apparently uh, as a mechanism for, for getting watermelons into small Japanese fridges, some farmers decided to grow them in these transparent cubes so that they took on the shape of a square. So you could just like sit it in your refrigerator and cut it. Yeah, more more random useless facts. <laughs> you know what? That that too is going into show notes. It's going into show notes. Awesome. Well, I guess that's the, that's the way that we can end it too. <laughs> yes, there it is. Square watermelons. Watermelons. There it is. The first you heard thing. it here. Square watermelons, Japan. <laughs> well, Vanessa, thank you so much for for being on Privacy Please and, and joining us and just sharing your story and your insight. Uh, we really appreciate what you do and and uh, for coming on the show and, and just taking the time with us to, to chat. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, you know, congratulations to the recent big news uh, over at uh, Rippling also, as I understand it, you guys are, are growing quite fast and you just got some nice infusion in. So good luck with that. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye on you. It's, it's, uh, it's important work you're doing. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for having me. We're, we're definitely excited about the Series B fundraising and it just gives us definitely that injection of capital to continue executing on, on building out this employee data platform. Excellent. Awesome. Well, whoever works with you, they're very lucky to have a, a positive person for their general counsel and keep, keep living life and being silly because that's uh, <laughs> there's only one way. I mean, we can't be unhappy here. So I agree. Awesome. Thanks so much. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have you on again. If, if new laws start to come out, which they definitely will. So more to discuss. tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplsp.
P-O-D. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on Spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.